Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning again. Romans 12 is where we're going to be. We're going to return to our studies. We've been working through Romans verse by verse, took a few breaks along the way. And so this morning, we're going to be in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, page 790 in, in the church Bibles, if that would be of, of use to you. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 9, Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Amen. That, that is the word of God. Let's, let's pray um, and ask God for his help. Father, may everything that is said and done and thought this morning in, in this context bring much praise and much glory to your name and much good to this church body and in turn to our community and the world. You're the only one who can do that. That is why we pray to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Citizens of God's kingdom, the people of God, the church, Christians, however you would name us, we do not merely focus on external behavior. I mean, on one level, you have to think we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and therefore by rights and by design, we, we are wondrously complex people. And so to put all our attention, especially from sermons or, or instruction, only on external behavior is not only dehumanizing, but I'm going to suggest to you it's strongly unbiblical. And so if you doubt that, open the Gospels, read of the religious authorities of the days Jesus walked this earth, and their whole meat and drink was essentially external behavior. So if you read the Gospels, what you'll find that in the Pharisees, in the Sadducees, the scribes, the experts in the law, who had a ferocious focus intensely on mere externals, and as a result of that way of life, what you find, now listen carefully, what you find in religious people are people who are very unforgiving in the Gospels, very hostile, rude, snooty, very violent, very little security. I mean, I mean, the leaders, the religious leaders, in one sense, were pandering into people, to people, and in the same breath, they were manipulating people, so the very little security. They were off-the-charts judgmental. 
and they should have known that a person is in great spiritual danger whenever we confess the sins of other people more than we confess our own. So all their works were simply to secure for them something only for themselves, and in essence, their external behavior was meant to look only after themselves. So they could do good things to other people, but they did those good things always about them. They were trying to secure some salvation. And in all of that, these people who focus merely on externals, when the Son of God comes before them, a gift from God, what do we find? They reject him. They, they reject the Messiah to save the world sent from God. And therefore, they were left to deal with their sins by their works. Indeed, in the Gospels, it's all external works, which makes for a terribly frustrating way to live. How bad was it? Well, listen to what Jesus said. This is Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside that dish is full of greed and self-indulgence, right? So outside nice and shiny, inside incredibly dirty. So when we come to verses like these, which it would seem, at least at first glance, to focus on externals. What are we to do with them? Maybe this example will help. Let's say your mom and dad secretly have a desire to be in a play, so they want to be in some local theater production. And they don't want anybody to know, so they, so they go to the theater, and by some crazy chance, they get parts. And so they get the part, and they get their lines. And so they practice those lines privately because they, you know, they don't want the kids to know. They want it to be a surprise. And, and all of that, the kids have no idea what's going on. And let's say one day mom and dad are at home. They're practicing their lines. And unbeknownst to them, the kids who were supposed to be home at 7 p.m., they come home early at 6 p.m. So the kids walk in and mom and dad are in another room and they're rehearsing their lines and they can hear mom and dad say things like, and this is part of their play, oh, you have never loved me. And because you never loved me, you're going to pay, you filthy animal. Or, like practicing the lines, all right, honey, at 2 a.m., we're going to leave the house, we're going to go to the bank, we're going to pick the lock, and we're going to rob the bank. Or they hear um, Shakespeare, Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, 1, Woman, thy name is frailty. Get thee to a nunnery. <laughs> so that makes me laugh. But anyway, the point is, the kids have no idea about the context that their mom and dad are saying those things in. They have no idea that the mom and, mom and dad wanted to be in the play, and so they went to the theater, and they somehow got accepted, and they got the lines, and now they're practicing their lines. All the kids know at that time is what they heard. And what they heard was wild. Now, I hope you see the point. For a person like me, or anybody for that matter, to just jump into that text that we just read without the full context is not preaching that text at all. If you do that, you, you can call it a synagogue sermon, you can call it a moral lesson, you can call it moralism, you can call it Mormonism, because Mormonism, Mormons are great on moral attributes. 
But whatever you call it, you can't call it biblical. Therefore, you can't say you're preaching the gospel or you're preaching the Bible. And if you would like to, you know, qualify the sermon, that kind of sermon in some way, you know, well, we all know we're saved by grace, but that will not do. Because the gospel, the very thing that underpins these moral imperatives, these moral imperatives which are good, the gospel says we have to go way deeper than external behavior. The gospel says you're not loved by God, you know, because you're lovely. You're loved in spite of your unloveliness, even though most of your unloveliness shows up on the inside more than you show it on the outside. And so we're not loved because we worked our way to be worthy of God's love, but because Jesus died for us when we were what? When we were unlovely, when we were wicked, and gave us the gift of his righteousness. Therefore, the kind of love God desires here, do you see it in verses 9 and 10? This sincere or genuine or devoted love can only come as a byproduct of God's grace. This is not humanly possible. This love is a reflection of Jesus, the sacrifice Jesus made for us. So there's nothing conventional about the love described here. Now, we've heard it. If we've grown up in church, we've heard this stuff a lot, that it might seem conventional. But I promise you, if you practice it, you know it's not conventional. It doesn't fit our natural, fit our natural framework. It, this is not convenient to our flesh. It, it, it will not meet any of our natural expectations in, in any lasting and pure way. It goes way beyond external behavior. And that's why this kind of love, it transcends the, the boundaries of race, of intellect, social status, political party, personal convictions that we hold. It transcends our own judgmental minds because it transcends all the boundaries that are in place by mere human wisdom since the fall. And, and it shows us that the maturity that we, that we need is not becoming independent of God, but recognizing when we see God's standard, how deeply dependent we are on his grace. Here's the dangerous thing about humans. We can make an idol out of anything, including our obedience. And so what Jesus does at the cross is he puts it in its proper place. Now, loved ones, as you hear these words, just know this. There are millions and millions of people who are held in darkness and spiritual ignorance because they've been put on a trail of working their way towards God or the God or their gods or whoever. So their moral morality is essentially their salvation on every level in time and, 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 and death. And what they fail to do is they fail to understand salvation is never a reward for a righteous, but it's a gift for the guilty. So a person who cannot glory in the gospel not only scares me, but they know very little of the sin that plagues their own heart. So when you hear these imperatives, these good imperatives, know this, the gospel flips our natural thinking. Um, it changes our thinking from be good, it's the only way to God, to be honest, be repentant, keep repenting, and go home justified. There's a difference. So that every ransom man and woman owes their salvation to the fact that during their days of sinning, God kept that door of mercy open by refusing to shut the door, even though our sins just mounted up. And therefore, 
Christian morality says, now you go love people that exact same way, right? Love them by way of grace and not their works and not their performance. Love people who are to you unlovable. Because if the grace we extend to others, which God extends to us, depends on a person's cooperation, depends on a person's goodness, then it's no longer grace. We foundationally love them. Now listen carefully. We love people in the church and we love people outside the church like they never have sinned against us at all. Because that's the gospel. That's biblical. That is justification. That is good news. So therefore, our obedience is not simply external. It's deeper. It's into the motive which drives our actions. Now, one, one last thing before we get to the points. Before our conversion, the law, either the law of God or the law of, own, of our own conscience was we have to. All our obedience was we have to, we have to, we have to. But after our conversion, the law, these moral imperatives are now, I get to. I finally can get to. Before, I broke God's rules. After our conversion and we sin, I broke God's heart. And there's an infinite difference between the two. One is incredibly self-centered. The other is grace-centered. Viktor Frankl had a quote a long time ago. He says, when a person cannot find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. I think we would all say that is true. A person can't find a deep sense of meaning. They distract themselves with pleasure. In the same bent with a Christian, I would suggest to you a Christian who cannot find a deep sense of satisfaction in the righteousness of Christ, in, in the person of Christ himself, they will more often distract themselves with morality to find satisfaction. Now, again, you're sensible people. Read the Gospels to see if you find any truth in that at all, because I do. Number one, verses 9 and 10, love, hypocrisy, and truth. Now, we, a few months ago, we covered this, so we'll be brief. Um, Paul is stating something that is very, very obvious. It's very possible to be polite. It's very possible to be helpful and apparently warm on the outside while inside despising the person that we are outwardly being nice to. All of us, I believe we would admit that we've done that. I mean, that kind of thing is very acceptable in society, but it's a sin in God's kingdom. So in the church, where there's always, to one degree, good, our traditional values, a culture of be, you know, niceness, so that we can be so nice that we think being nice this way covers the internal gossip, the internal backbiting, the tribalism, or the prejudices that we would hold. And in that, there is no sincerity at all in that kind of love. That is hypocrisy, as Paul said. It is a horrible thing. Isn't it a horrible thing to speak really kind to a person? And then as soon as they leave your presence, your true heart is revealed by either thinking or speaking evil of them, making fun of them, pointing out some defect that's just there. We might as well be the devil when we do that. But on the other end of that stick, 
it's possible that we can love someone, but we don't love them according to the will of God. That's verse 9 and 10. So we do not hate what is evil, literally to be horrified at what God calls evil, and we don't cling literally to glue ourselves in separately to what God calls good. And you hear this kind of thing all the time in, in songs, like, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. Paul would say, and the Bible would back him, if you truly love someone, then your heart is tied to their heart. And so their distresses become your distresses, and their happiness becomes your happiness. And the temptations that they face, you understand. But if all of your love and all of your care for those people inside the church specifically, but, but, but outside as well, if all that love is not rooted in truth, in theology, what you're really doing is love them, loving them in a way that's simply best for you and overlooks God. That's insincere love. That is love which loves evil. And so, again, it might seem strange that to tell someone to love and then verse 9 to hate in the same verse, but that's what Paul does. We cannot love rightly without hating wrong rightly. Biblical love hates wrong things rightly. So to love sincerely, to be passionately devoted to the truth, and to love the person in order that you're seeking the highest good for that person in, in that love. That is so hard to do. If you're sitting there thinking it's easy, it is not in most cases. We are complicated people. We need God's grace there. So part of sincere love is to hate evil, and part of hating evil is, is to hate it when, when people do not forgive. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate it when we are unwilling to repent? Don't you hate it when we're judgmental? Don't you hate it when, when we, we see some injustice taking place and we do not personally help that person in that injustice to try to secure some justice for them? Don't you hate it when you just leave people out in the arena of life and we don't come to their aid? Don't you hate it when Jesus Christ isn't glorified in song, in preaching, in prayers, in living? Number one, love, hypocrisy, and truth. Number two, affection and respect. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And again, this, I hate to say it, but it's true that by nature, we find it very easy to dishonor people than to honor people. I think it's kind of stylish now, probably always, to, you know, quote, call people out. I think that kind of calling people out, it very much excites the flesh to somehow, you know, shine the light on some defect, some burden that the person wrestled with, some incapacities that they might have until their grave. And once, you know, once it's done, once you shine the light, then, you know, you call for their job, you call for their removal, you call for their head. Loved ones, that is not the mind of Christ. That behavior makes us bold in the wrong way. That, that I promise you, that behavior, it, it excites the flesh, but nothing more. Do you see the word honor there? It means to treat someone or something as valuable and precious. 
And when you think about that, there are deep theological roots here. This is Theology 101. Christianity has always understood that every human being is created in the image of God. Now, we would admit that it's easy to love, you know, the superstar, the popular, the suave, the person who can command the room, the person, person who's agreeable to us, and so on. But every human being, says God, by design, bears resemblance to God in our rationality, in our personality, in our creativity, our worth, and the fact that every human being has an eternal soul. Therefore, each person we meet the lady behind the counter, the guy behind the thing, wherever, infinitely precious to God. Infinitely precious, amazingly important, and should be treated as such. This is a familiar quote from C.S. Lewis, but I'm going to read it because there's one thing that I forgot that I wanted to remind ourselves. Listen to what he says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods, little g, and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one, the glorious creature, or the other, the nightmare of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. This is the part I want you to listen to. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. Okay, we know that, but they seem like they have divine power. These are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Nations, culture, art, civilization, coming to an end. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, dishonor, immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. Which? So you think about that and you think about this verse. This means we listen to people intently. It means we are to be aware at the highest of levels of their hopes and their joys, and their needs, and their fears, and all those things. When you know someone that well, you begin to be considerate of them. And we try not to weaponize the things they tell us, the things that they just show us, even the things which we know are less than good, which, again, they may carry to their grave. Because there's some things only about our life that only death will fix. Remember the words of Jesus, if you love those who love you, I'm going to paraphrase that, big deal. What, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In addition, we, we Christians, we, not only do we see other people as made in the image of God, in Christ, we're in union with Christ. When you see me and I see you, I see people united to Jesus, people in the image of Christ. Some, sometimes, Let's just say this, to honor people in the church is to honor Jesus Christ. To dishonor people in the church is to dishonor Jesus Christ. Sometimes when I know I'm about ready to meet Christians who, you know, they're not happy with me, I do two things. The first thing I say to them and ask them is, am I your brother in Christ? Just let's get that out of the way. Are you talking to a Christian? And if they say yes, then I say in some reasonable way, please take pity on me for Jesus' sake. 
I don't care how weak that sounds. And I don't even care if I win the argument. What I just said was true. It was true. So instead of, you know, blowing myself up like a blowfish, I bow down to the truth as it is in Jesus. I have a prayer book. I found this line. Father, we join our prayers to you with hearts full of family love and ask for each other the blessings we seek for ourselves. You could say we ask for each other the forgiveness that we seek for ourselves. We, we ask for others the honor that we seek for ourselves and so on. And can we just pause for a moment and, and you hear these imperatives. Don't you want to just thank God that the gospel is true? I do. Aren't you, aren't you saying no wonder God has to save us by grace. No wonder righteousness has to be imputed in us. We can't qualify ourselves. We can't move up the ladder. We, we can't get enough righteousness on our own. We need to rescue. I mean, you hear those imperatives, and, and I'm not trying to embarrass anyone, but are you, you feeling strong with those imperatives? Because I'm not. Knowingly or unknowingly, it's very easy to dishonor people, especially the people who you don't like. And that's why, and this is one of our, if you would, something that's of value to us. That's why repentance is, is part of a Christian's daily existence. Because when we repent sincerely of our sins, it softens our heart towards the sins of others. When we recall the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sins in some meaningful way, not any cliche way, but in a meaningful way, it does something. Because when we understand the gospel... then we understand more, more, more of God's truth than we could ever know. A person who doesn't understand the gospel, a person who demotes the gospel, or even a really nice person, they can't do these things. And they're going to have to choose between two alternatives. You know, one is a kind of a phony love, where you're nice towards people that you dislike only externally because there's some, you want there to be some payoff. So either pay off, you know, God, are you seeing this? Or pay off everyone, are you seeing this? Or, you know, I don't want to have anyone say anything bad about me, so I better be good this way. Even though this is all mangled up, I better be good this way. That's one, or kind of sporadic love. Kindness towards people that you like. People you don't, you just stay away from. But if your heart is the heart of Christ, and your heart is a heart that's built in repentance, then you soften as you serve. You live with understanding of how difficult life is. And your service is sincere towards God and sincere towards people. And the moment becomes rich to you when, by God's grace, you honor others, publicly or privately. And, and I don't want you to hear all that and let, let, you know, don't reflect on what I'm just saying. Okay, think with me. How does the gospel, as opposed to mere moralism, okay, gospel versus mere moralism, how does the gospel give us the only answer to real sincere love that we're learning here? Well, I can give you four reasons. One I just thought of. Here's the one I just thought of. Moralism excites what it promises to remove, but it doesn't remove it. Okay, that's the end of Colossians 2. You have to read that one for yourself. That's what moralism does. It promises you, if, if you do this, then you won't have to worry about that. It won't work. 
Second, these moral imperatives, again, they teach us that we can't love this way by nature. We can't love this way on our own. We have to have power from God. So that every victory of obedience is his victory. We get the good, the, we get the good feelings, and there should be good feelings with obedience. But God gets the glory. Two or three, the only love that won't disappoint is a love that can't change, that can't be lost, that is not based on how good we are or how bad we are. God's love in Christ to us is that love. And what Paul is saying here, now go love people that way. That is supernatural love. That is love outside of nature. It's love undeserved, but undeserved nonetheless. And finally, if you're loved rightly by God, and you are, you are loved rightly by God, we will learn to love men and women rightly like our Father loves them, right? Our fathers are great examples of how we're supposed to do stuff. Our Heavenly Father is a perfect example of how we're supposed to love. So the qualities of love, they'll be seasoned, they'll be aged. It'll be cross-centered love. In fact, just tell yourself, everything that I do as a Christian, specifically love, runs through the work of Christ on the cross. Runs through the work of Christ. What put Christ on the cross? Love. What shielded us from sin's power and penalty and one day sin's presence? Love. So you develop in the strongest of ways a tenderness and affection towards others. And you want to be merciful. Remember, remember King David? When King David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, remember King David had committed adultery, King David, King David had murdered a man, a little time has passed, and, and Nathan is there talking to David, and David's all glossy-eyed, and, and Nathan tells a story. There's a rich man with tons of sheep, and there's a poor man with just one, and the rich man takes away the one little sheep the poor man has, and, and the poor man raised that one sheep and cared for that one sheep and loved that one sheep, and that rich man went in there and took that sheep, and, and there was a guest that came over, and he took the sheep, and he used that one sheep, even though he had like a thousands of sheep, he took that one sheep from the man to feed the table. And remember what the Bible says? And David burned with anger and said, that man deserves to die. And he flashes really excited there. Yes! Right? I'm telling you one thing, these people today are going to that man deserves to die. You moralist David. How 21st century popular culture, a very moral thing to say. But remember what the man of God says, per God? Do you remember? David, you are that man. Point. David is all of us apart from Christ. No pity, no mercy out of David. And the one good part of the story is once David was confronted with the truth, he repented. We are the man, we are the woman, apart from Christ. Now go, go live in that framework. I don't want to just make David terrible. Do you know what David did two chapters before chapter 11? David, two chapters before chapter 11 was far better than the David of chapter 11 and 2 Samuel. David says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul who I can show kindness to? 
for Jonathan's sake. Do you remember that? Can I change it around? Is there anyone left in the church? Is there anyone left in the world who I can show kindness to for Jesus' sake? That's Christian. Not for their sake, but for Jesus' sake. Three, love and patience. Verse 11 and 12, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. How many imperatives? Four imperatives in two verses. And you read those, at first it seems like it speaks to our relationship with God. You know, have a super hot relationship with Jesus kind of thing. You know, stay hot for Jesus. But if you look at the text, you have to notice that it's, it's in the very middle of what? Directions about Christian relationships. So what Paul is saying here is like, you, you need to be aware of your spiritual resources. Make use of those things. Don't give up on your Christian brothers and sisters because patience is one of your resources. Don't give up on your brothers and sisters. Keep hope alive with what? You see it there? Verse 12, joy. Or 11, verse 11, joy. Then patience and prayer. Meet all the troubles that you address with people and things. Meet them with patience and meet them with prayer. I mean, if you're going to deeply love a person in this life, it's going to be hard work. Patience. So you're going to have to reschedule stuff for them. You're going to have to redouble things for them. You're going to have to rethink your life on their behalf. That is Christian. And there will be pain, right? There will be pain in all this stuff. Patience is long-suffering pain. Prayer, C.S. Lewis, the, the only way to be sure of not having your heart broken is to never give it to anyone. So if you don't want to worry about patience and prayer and being, and being patient with people and all the things that Paul says here, affliction, if you don't want to worry about that, then just take your heart and put it out in a cold room. But when you're involved in life, verses 11, verse 12, that's the way. I have this quote, it's, I can't remember who it's from, but it says, in this life, victory often looks like endurance. Endurance calls for patience and for prayer and hope sealed with joy. Number four, generosity and bitterness. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So, so these two verses, what Paul is saying is, put your money where your mouth is. Do you see the word share there? Koinonia, okay? Which either means share in the needs of people or share in the sufferings of people. And so the context here is to be generous in your sharing to meet human needs. Now, this is so practical, Right? You don't have to think very hard. The beginning of Acts, what do we find about the church? They, they shared their possessions with those in need. And what Paul is doing here, beginning in verse 13, he's trying to say, Christians, make your yes an easy yes when there's a need, whether it's a physical need or a practical need. Make your yes an easy yes. How do I know that? Look at verse 13. You see the phrase, practice hospitality? It's an aggressive word in the Greek. The word there for practice means ioka, or the, it's ioka, and it means aggressively chase, like a hunter tracing prey, prey. Hunt down those people in need. Hunt down those needs and meet those needs. Now, do you hear that? Because 
that kind of truth in verse 13 can be met with phrases like what? Well, you know, we can't help everybody. <laughs> we only have so much. Well, you know, if they would have done X, Y, and Z like we did X, Y, and Z, they would not be in need. There's only so much we can do. Well, you can't be too careful with people these days. Loved ones, in this context, we are talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and to whatever degree those things may be true, people have to be helped. People have to be helped. So when Paul, under God, writes, pursue with all haste or chase after, earnestly desire to overtake the need, apprehend the need with your hospitality. Hospitality, lover of strangers, literally, but, but the idea here is what Jesus said, Matthew 25, 35, I was a stranger and you took me into your home. Verse 40, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. You know what one verse I've always liked in Proverbs since I was a little kid? Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. So even our Lord, who is rich, identifies himself with the poor. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Verse 14, speak well of, and this is a literal reading of verse 14. Do you see it there? Bless those who persecute you. Speak well of, praise those who put you to flight. In other words, speak really good and do well with people who want to get rid of you. <laughs> and if you look at verse 13, please, it's a pray, play on words. You see the word practice that I just uh, interpreted? It's the same exact word. So the word there was hunt them down, hunt down the need. Paul uses it, and it's a play on words. It's like, speak well of people who, who want to hunt you down and put you to flight and get rid of you and harm you. God says, you speak well of them, you praise them, and you bring them good. How much good? Well, blessing. <laughs> that is so unconventional. It's so darn hard to do, isn't it? We need God's power. If we're Christians, we have it. One commentator says, there's no better way to express our positive wishes for our enemy's welfare than to turn them into prayer and into action. Prayer and action. Do, do you remember the movie Kicking and Screaming? There's a scene towards the end of the movie when, when Phil Weston, the, the son, is coaching the soccer team against his dad, Buck Weston, you know, Buck's the stud and, and, and Phil's like me, and, and they meet in the middle of the field and they're kind of talking and the son's trying to show affection to the dad and the dad's not giving him any affection at all and he says, every time you say something back to me, it makes me love you more. That's what we say to our enemies. That's what we say to the people who persecute you. Every time you say something bad to me, we'll say... It makes me love you more. Tell me what human can do that. Tell me. Did Jesus do it on the cross? <clears throat> we need to get done. Uh, there's all these things in our minds we could justify, you know, on the human level, why we should not help, why, why, why they did not earn what we are going to give them. Why we, you know, ought not to obey what we're told to obey. 
We should not bless bad people. What is that? Well, all that is mere human wisdom. If you like, that's just like tit-for-tat wisdom. But every Christian in this room who belongs to Jesus Christ has a deeper pearl of wisdom. It does not belong to this world. It's a kind of wisdom that says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we have a deeper well to draw from for Jesus' sake and for mercy's sake. The mercy that we received, but we did not earn. So every Christian in this room can stop the bleeding wherever it is. We can stop the bleeding. Because we can obey our master who bled until he died. For us, that is the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. He bled so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. I think I'm going to stop here. There's a whole lot more to say, but I think it would be best to say this. Let me just get right to the end. Hmm. The potential for every human being to be a force for good for Christ is there. This kind of behavior serves that in. The only one who sees the real you, that's God. He's the only one that knows the real us, warts and all. He loves us to the sky. And what he asks us to do then is love other people in the church and outside the church that same way, that same way. Let's pray. God and Father, we we thank you that we do not stand ever as Christians on the works of our hand or the works of our flesh. We stand before your throne right now in the work of one who is infinitely precious and infinitely perfect and never knew wrong, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have such an interest in us as Christians that you want us to be more like him, and that is your promise. That's not a terror to us. It shouldn't make us afraid. It's a privilege. And we need help, God, to live the way that we just heard from your word this morning. We need understanding. We need mercy. We need patience. We need grace. We need the gift of repentance. We need the gift of feeling our weakness so that Christ's power may rest on us. So that is our request. And finally, Father, as we leave here today, may we know your, may you bless us and keep us. May you make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. May you turn your face towards us even now and give us peace, the, the kind of peace that only Christ can bring. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. 
Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.